Welcome to Word Matters, presented by the Christian Standard Bible. Word Matters is a podcast dedicated to helping Christians understand some of the most confusing and controversial passages of the Bible. Now join the conversation with your hosts, Trevin Wax and Brandon Smith. Was Jesus really tempted like we are? That is the question that we will answer and try to answer on this episode of Word Matters. I'm Brandon Smith, here as always with my co-host Trevin Wax, and today we're discussing Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, and helping us work through this passage is Dr. David Allen. David is the Distinguished Professor of Preaching and Dean of the School of Preaching at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, He's written a number of books, including uh, the Hebrews volume in the New American Commentary series, uh, and a recent book on the extent of the atonement. Uh, He's also the co-chairman of the CSB Translation Committee, so we're really thankful to serve with him on that side. Uh, David, thanks so much for hopping on with us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's wonderful to to be here. So, David, this this passage seems pretty straightforward, but it has been debated over the years for a few reasons, uh, both scholarly reasons and some practical concerns that arise. Uh, On the one hand, it brings up the debate about Jesus' human nature, and on the other hand, it brings up questions about our own sin and whether Jesus was tempted to sin in the same ways that we are, in the same situations that we are. So I'm, I'm going to read the text from Hebrews 4, 4 uh, 14 through 16, and then if you can help us work through this. So uh, verse 14 begins, um, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So David, as Trevin mentioned, this brings up a ton of questions really about Jesus's humanity in a lot of ways. And so uh, let's start there and then we can kind of talk about more of the practical experiential side of it. Um, so really, there's the debate over this this passage and over Jesus' human nature in relation to this passage really goes uh, in two different ways. On the one hand, you can say that Jesus could have sinned. He had the ability to sin, but he chose not to, which is called peccability. That's the, the $5 theological word for it. Um, or um, so, so in other words, basically, he, he was tempted in a very real way, right? He could have acted upon his sins if he wanted to, uh, just like we can. Uh, others would say that Jesus was tempted like we are, but because of his sinless nature, uh, that he could not have sinned even if he wanted to, which is impeccability is the word that we use there. Uh, so broadly speaking, David, if you could just uh, spend a few minutes maybe telling us uh, what view you take here, how you work this out, what do you think are kind of the key the key uh, points of this passage? Well, first of all, thank you all for inviting me to be a part of such a very simple and easy question <laughs> to discuss. I'm grateful for that's you. That's what we're thankful. here for. And this is the only uh, passage in Hebrews uh, uh, that's remotely oh, yeah, controversial. The only one you know. that's remotely controversial. <laughs> Well, the short answer is, which am I? Well, on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I'm an impeccableist, and on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, a peccableist, and then on Sunday, I flip a coin, because uh, this is a, a tricky, tricky subject, um, and frankly, it's tricky for a number of reasons, but I think it's important to note that the Bible actually does not answer this question. Uh, which is why it's heavily debate, debated by evangelical scholars. You'll find people who line up on both sides of this issue. Uh, it doesn't question their orthodoxy at all. It's uh, both views, the peccabilist view, the idea that Jesus could have sinned but didn't, or the impeccabilist position, the idea that Jesus could not have sinned. Uh, both of these uh, positions, both of uh, holding both of these positions is within the realm of orth- orthodoxy. 
And the important thing to keep in mind is really the question involves two things. It's the issue, number one, of the nature of Christ, mm-hmm. and number two, the nature of temptation. That's the key. The two, there are two primary issues. And I think there are about four things, at least, that we need to keep in mind as we approach uh, this topic. The first thing is that the New Testament very clearly affirms the sinlessness of Jesus in the incarnation. I think that's vital to take note of. Uh, The New Testament clearly affirms that. So the issue, whether he could have sinned or whether he could not have sinned, the fact is he didn't. And the Bible is very clear about that. And that is, we have to come down on, on that side of orthodoxy. But I think the second thing to keep in mind is both positions agree uh, that Jesus had no sin nature. Uh, rarely, rarely do you find somebody way off the beaten path who would argue differently from that, mm-hmm. but certainly within the realm of evangelicalism, uh, everyone agrees and both positions agree that Jesus had no sin nature. And by the way, the reason for that is the virgin birth. The word birth, of course, emphasizes the human nature, the fact that he is one of us, he is uh, has possesses humanity, and then virgin, of course, the sinlessness of that humanity. And I think that's important. A third important thing to keep in mind is that Jesus' full identification with fallen humanity, he has a full identification with fallen humanity with one exception. And that exception is clearly delineated in Hebrews 4.15, and that exception is without sin. That's what distinguishes uh, him uh, from us. He was a man. He was not just disguised as a man in the incarnation. He was an actual man, an actual human being, fully God and fully man, dust and deity wedded together in one person. So the two natures of Christ are very important to affirm in this discussion. And so that's the third point uh, that I would uh, say by way of introduction as we get into this. And then the fourth thing is I think we need to acknowledge Scripture clearly says the temptations were real. Uh, These were not unreal temptations. This was no, as Abelard, the theologian of the medieval period, said that uh, this was a theatrical demonstration. Mm -hmm. Or no, that's not the case at all. Nor, as Luther said, uh, is Jesus like a block of wood here. I mean, no, there is the reality that uh, temptation here is indeed very, very real. And so as we move into a discussion of this, I think that's crucial. Now, I'll just tell you where I am right now, and then we can talk further about it. But I've definitely leaned toward the impeccableist position. And I have tried to outline that position on pages 306 through 313 in my commentary on Hebrews in the New American Commentary series. But uh, my short answer to your question is I would lean toward the impeccableist position. That is that he that he could not could have not sinned. have sinned right. Well, so to follow up on something that you just mentioned about the temptations being very real, um, how how specific are these temptations? Because I think one of the questions that comes up in conversations with people in in local congregations is uh, this question of well. Was was is Jesus has he been tempted in the exact same way specificity perhaps as in, in the way I'm tempted? So did you know did Jesus experience the temptation to murder or to steal or to tell a lie or did he was he tempted sexually? You know what uh, is is the author of Hebrews when he says he was tempted in every way that we are is he making 
a, a point about specificity or is is something else he's trying to get across there? Well, I don't know that we would want to say that in every possible way that an individual human being could be tempted, that we would want to say Jesus experienced every one of those possible ways of temptation because that would be virtually an innumerable number of ways. And of course, then there are some things that culturally 2,000 years ago may not be uh, applicable uh, uh, or, or today that are that are applicable may not have been applicable 2,000 years ago. But I think we can say this, those temptations were real and in the sense that all of the categories of temptation that a human being can face, our Lord faced, regardless of what those categories are, which would be inclusive of everything, including sexual temptation. Because the issue here, the, the problem is about the fact that temptation, the question is only a problem uh, because it presupposes susceptibility to temptation mm-hmm. and to sin. And that's what generates the question in the first place. Right. And so we have to ask, well, does Jesus have normal human desires? Well, it would seem biblically that he indeed does. He's fully human. He experiences hunger and thirst. And he is capable now as a human being of giving himself over to death. And so it would seem that all of the, the d- desires... Uh, are are indeed there, but of course James one thirteen is what creates a problem in this discussion because James one thirteen says that God cannot be tempted with evil, mm. so God Himself is not temptable, but. The fact of Christ's incarnation, and now we have the two natures in one person, and the Scripture direct revelation here in Hebrews 4.15, make those temptations uh, real. And I think, uh, you know, is temptation possible if sin is impossible? That's the question Mm -hmm. that people ask. They, They say, well, how? Okay, well, if he couldn't have sinned, if you take the impeccablest position, doesn't that negate the reality um, of the temptations. I don't think that's the case at all. In fact, one of the illustrations I would use would be, uh, do you remember the days gone by when they would advertise unbreakable dishware? <laughs> and so you go in and there's a guy there demonstrating that uh, he's going to prove to you that the this dishware uh, these plates are unbreakable. And so what does he do? Well, he takes one and he whacks it on the table and it doesn't break. And he takes it and he whacks it against the wall and it doesn't break. And he takes a hammer to it and whacks it and it doesn't break. And he exposes it to all kinds of extremities of testing. And guess what? Well, the thing doesn't break. It truly is an unbreakable dish. Well, then the fact that it was unbreakable did that in any way lessen the reality of the tests that were put to it? And the answer, of course, is no. I would say by analogy, now no illustration is perfect because we're dealing with the God-man here. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with Jesus who is fully God and fully man. But by analogy, the same accrues here, the same situation is at play uh, such that the temptations were very real. Even though he did not succumb to any of those temptations, I still think that that the fact that, let's assume the impeccability position for a moment, that does not negate, in my judgment, the reality of the temptation. I've heard some people say that um, um, Jesus, by not giving in to temptation, actually experienced the full force of temptation because everyone else that gives in to temptation at some point the pressure may be such that people give in. And yet Jesus, right. yes, but Jesus, by never giving in to temptation, actually withstood the full force of temptation in a way that no other human being has. I think there is a measure of truth to that. 
Um, so here, here's a here's a, uh, a peccabilist side um, devil's advocate. Okay. And this is honestly just where this is where I, uh, I I agree with you, but this is where the peccable pulls me on the Monday, Wednesday, Friday, like you, which is there's so much in the New Testament about Jesus being the second Adam, and you know fulfilling the the role that Adam didn't uh, fulfill. Adam was without sin, yet fully capable, obviously, of sinning. Jesus is the second Adam. He's supposed to fulfill this vocation, but in that way, he actually can't do that. So in some ways, it would almost seem that, that him being obedient to the, to the cross, uh, that he actually wasn't able to do that fully because he wasn't fully the second Adam because there were things that were different about that. So what would you say to that devil's advocate view? Okay, well, no analogy, even the scriptural analogy, Christ being the second Adam, which is very clearly a biblical truth. But the biblical authors are not attempting to say that there is a perfect one-for-one, one-to-one correlation of of, of everything that could possibly be entailed by that analogy. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first thing that that we would need to say about that. And... So and then and then secondly, what you have is the temptations then that are occurring are both temptations and trials, and they're very real. And Jesus is experiencing those as the second Adam, and he is the second Adam because he is fully man. The problem with this is we tend people tend to lean toward one or the other, uh, which will get us out of balance. If we lean toward the deity of Jesus. Uh, then we may want to say, well, his temptations were not fully real. But if we go too far into the realm of the humanity of Jesus and not acknowledging the fact that he that we have the two natures in one person, then we can go to an opposite extreme. So we can you get into a docetic kind of a situation, and yeah. you don't want to, you know, we don't want to get into theological error here. But I think that uh, that. Uh, the the fact that Jesus came, think about it this way, there is a sense in which he is like the first Adam in that uh, the first Adam was innocent, but of course he was not God. He didn't possess deity. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the second Adam who is fully man like the first Adam, fully innocent like the first Adam prior to his sin, but unlike the first Adam, he is also God. Mm-hmm. And so I, when you put that into the equation, and you do have to put that into the equation, there's no way to leave that out. That has to be there. Uh, and another aspect of this that relates to your question, to, to turn the, I might turn the tables on my, on the, on my devil's advocate there. If Jesus was impeccable before the incarnation, which I think we would all affirm, all theologians would affirm, if that's true of him before the incarnation, should it also not be true afterward. And I would think that it would be, uh, but that in no way diminishes uh, the reality of the actual temptations and testings that he faced. Yeah, and the truth is that he, I mean, it, it did take God becoming a man to be able to to live out Adam's story the right way because none of us were ever able to. Exactly right. Um, as, we, as we wrap this up, I, I, I know we always like to discuss how we would preach or teach this passage. We, you know, we have pastors... Uh, small group leaders, Sunday school teachers, parents who listen to this. And and so I, I just, uh, David, you're a preacher, and uh, I, I'd be curious how, if you were coming across this passage in your own sermon preparation, what would be one of the things you'd want to get across that you'd want to leave with people? 
Well, if I were preaching this text, I would first be preaching verses 14 through 16 together because that's a paragraph unit of meaning semantically in the Greek New Testament. And I'm very big on preaching through books of the Bible and preaching through the the units of meaning that are there with a minimal paragraph unit. And this uh, verse 15 falls right in the middle of that that Mm -hmm. unit. So I would definitely... Uh, deal with this uh, in that in that unit, and the kinds of the things that I would do. Number one is on on controversial issues uh, in preaching. I'm very big on giving all the views. Now you can't you can't spend a lot of time in that, but you need you need to explain to the congregation. Hey, there are two ways of looking at this. Uh, within Orthodox Christianity. And so I would do that. I would walk through that. I would also, if I'm preaching on this, I would do the thing that I did at the beginning here. I would say, hey, there are four things that you need to keep in mind. And I would enumerate those four before I got into the text, before I preached in order to explain it, illustrate it, and apply it. I would say, keep these four things in mind as we move through uh, the, the question. I would explain carefully, but in short order, what is the, the peccability position and the fact that it hinges on three primary things. Number one, the humanity of Jesus. Number two, the temptability implies his ability to sin. And number three, uh, f- that the fact that our Lord has free will. And so those are the three key ingredients that the peccability position will gravitate toward. I would briefly explain that in my sermon. And then I would say, now the impeccability position, you also have three things that we gravitate toward. One is the full deity of Christ. Number two is uh, the fact that God has decreed the plan of redemption and we know it does not fail. And that's an argument, by the way, for the impeccability position. And number three, the, the divine attributes. This gets into the nature of the God-man, Jesus, that he still possesses the attributes of immutability in the sense other than that he's chosen to become man, but in other ways, uh, in terms of character and nature, as well as omnipotence and omniscience. And so I would, you know, I would explain that. But beyond that, then as I move into this, I would, I would do everything I could to stay with the text. I would stay with the, stay with my wingman, stay with the text here, and and just uh, uh, develop the text as you have it, and then try to utilize uh, clear, crisp, scintillating illustrations uh, or analogies that would help to uh, explain. Uh, for example, I usually use my unbreakable dishes analogy or yeah, illustration. Really yeah. I think that's a helpful way people can get their mind around that. And, and even for, you know, sermon title here, I thought of my own sermon title next time I preach on this text. And I'm terrible at this. I'm, I, there are people who are so creative, and you guys around this table are in that category, and I'm not. I'm pretty much plain vanilla. But trying to come up with sermon titles is difficult. But I've got a good sermon title playing off of the upcoming movie from the famous book, uh, the movie Same Kind of Different as Me. And so my sermon title now on this is going to be Different Kind of Same as Me. <laughs> Because that's exactly who Jesus is. He is fully God and fully man. And so he is a different kind of same as me. He is the same as me. He's fully man. But he's a different kind of same as me. He's fully God. Which is good news. That is great (laughs) news. And then finally, what I would do is weave in the actual temptation of Jesus in Luke 4, the temptation narratives in the Gospels, and show that the three categories of temptation that our Lord faced, that he teaches us 
how to win that victory. This is where I would bring that in as an illustration and application to us today, how our Lord overcame those temptations uh, by the power of the Word of God. Mm -hmm. This is what we have. We don't have divine nature. We have the Spirit living within us. We have the Word of God, uh, but we don't possess the divine nature that He possesses, but He teaches us by example how to win the victory over temptation when it comes our way. And I would weave that uh, into the sermon as well. Yep. I'd I just add, uh, if, you're in, in, if, I'm, if I'm preaching through this, I, I love that, those analogies and the way to explain it. But that I, I want people as well to, to approach the throne of grace with confidence Absolutely. in their prayer life, to, to feel dependent on, on, on Christ, the one who overcame Fully. temptation. And at the same time is sympathizing. So he's exactly. not so different that we can't, that he can't sympathize That's right. with us. Which is, by the way, the whole point of the, the author of Hebrews is to connect the full humanity of Jesus in 2, 14 through 18. And now here again in chapter mm -hmm. 4, 14 through 16, and then bleeding into 5, 1 through 10, which is the great comparison of why he is our high priest yeah. and how he, uh, the purpose of the high priest is one who can sympathize. And so that leads, of course, to verse 16 in the paragraph. And I I would make uh, those connections just as you're saying as a way of saying, look, here is why this is important. Here is how you can make this happen in your life. It is because we have a sympathetic high priest Amen. who can identify with us in all points as we are yet without sin. Mm, that'll preach right there. <laughs> preach. Uh, David, thank you so much for hopping on with us today. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Trevin, thank you as always for co-hosting. Thank Thanks, you Brandon. all for listening. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Word Matters has been presented by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is faithful to the original languages, but clear for today's audience. Find out more at csbible.com.